Okay. Whew. All right. Got to stretch here. Get ready. <laughs> the official podcaster's warm up. Yeah, exactly. Just stretch your neck a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Limber up. Do you know the rule of two, Mike? I have no idea what you're talking about. This is a thing that I love. The rule of two is that two is one and one is none. This is applicable to so many things in your life. As a starting point, I often like to think of the rule of two with things that you have around the house. So for example, if you have one roll of toilet paper, you really don't have any toilet paper because when that one runs out, you're in trouble. So you really need two rolls of toilet paper at all time. It's a redundancy rule, basically, is where this comes from. I'm not surprised you love it. I do love it. I this do love is it. like, I guess your door, right, in the old flat, that applied to the rule of two because the one door was just no good. You may as That's well true. have no doors. <laughs> That's true. The one door in our flat was like no doors in our flat. If you have two doors, then it's like one door, <laughs> which is exactly how I think of our current flat, that my wife can be in a room where I can't hear her because there are two doors between us, which act like one door should. So that's a good point. I didn't even think about it in this way. But this is one of my little pieces of advice for trying to run a life very smoothly, is that everything that you can possibly have two of, you should. Two shampoo bottles, two bottles of vitamins, two boxes of cereal, two cartons of eggs. You want duplicates of everything. And then when you're down to one of those things, that's the sign that you need to buy the next one. And this way, you're never out. You're never out of anything. Do you think this sounds good? This does sound good. I like this theory. It's applicable to everything in your whole life, everything that's important. I used to keep a spare shirt and tie at school because you never know when you're going to spill something on your shirt or your tie. So if you only have one shirt, it's like you have no shirts. Same thing with the tie. It's this way with computer files. You only have one copy of that photo of your baby. Guess what? You have no copies of that photo of your baby. I even think it's applicable to work. If you have one source of income, in many ways, it's like you have no sources of income. Because if something happens with your main job, you are in lots and lots of trouble. One source of income, none source of income. That's my happy thought for the day. Could we start every episode like this? It's like Jerry Springer, right? We just have Gray's beginning thought. Oh, no, that's too <laughs> much. Then I have to prepare too much, Mike. It's not going to happen. I have to prepare for the show all the time now. I very much enjoyed that. I feel like my life is enriched. I feel like I understand a little bit more about your redundancy system now. Mm-hmm. But I would like to apply this to this, this rule of two to one more thing. Mm-hmm. If you have bought a Cortex t-shirt, mm. you should buy another one. <laughs> Look at you, businessman Mike. <laughs> a perfect Buy segue. Another one. It even says redundant t-shirt on the back. <laughs> right? You want another one. Plus, if you bought the gray one, you should buy a blue one. And if you bought a blue one, you should buy another blue one. I'm just realizing I did buy one gray Cortex t-shirt, but I should definitely buy another gray Cortex t-shirt. Or I should a blue definitely one. get two. How are how are the shirt sales doing, Mike? Do you know all the beh- I know nothing about this Teespring thing. How's it going? What's it look like? Currently, uh you were about two-thirds gray to one-third blue. Hmm. hmm. That seems pretty good. Seems pretty good. Nope. No? You don't nope. think so? should be the other way around. Actually, it should be like 75% blue, 25% gray. Now, if anything, it should be 75% gray. There should be gray domination on those t-shirts. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that you were able to eke out a third blue. 
You've got some solid supporters there, Mike. People love me, Craig. <laughs> I think they just love blue. <laughs> I think that's what it is. So the t-shirts are still available. I would, and Gray would very much love it if you would buy one and uh, you'll be able to show your support for our show proudly on your mm-hmm. body, which is the best way to show your support for something. And the t-shirts are available until September 15th. When is this show coming out and how long do people have? How does that work? So this show will be coming out on the 7th. So they will have one week from when this show is released. All right. But this is the last time they will hear about it from us, Gray. Okay. Because by the time the next episode of this show comes out, the t-shirts will have already been sold and be on the printer. Shipping to the lucky people around the world. All over the globe. Go buy some more Gray shirts. I like it. So... As is normal with with the show, uh, we can never predict what people will want to hear about. And apparently <laughs> slow music is a thing that people really care about. So we've had lots of follow-up on super slow music. Mm-hmm. So a few people have told us why this exists and a few people have sent us in some stuff that makes it. So Xantory on the Reddit has sent in a link to uh, a, software, a piece of software called Paul Stretch. Mm-hmm. which is free and the source code is available online. And this is the software that people use to stretch out the songs. Uh, so you can go and download it and you can stretch out your own music. He also provided a explanation for how this works. I'm not even going to attempt it because it confuses me. <laughs> yes, I did see some feedback about how this works and people were talking about Fourier transforms. And my only thought on that was, oh, yes, I remember a time when I used to understand Fourier transforms, but that time is not now. It's long gone, and now I no longer understand how they work. It's math magic. I wouldn't have even said them like that. The word, the way you pronounce that word is not even... I was like Fourier, but Fourier... How did you say it? I think it's Fourier. Fourier, Fourier, very fancy. It's been a long time, though. Is it French? It's probably a French mathematician's where it comes from. We'll go with that. And then Andrew on the Reddit provided a link to an interview with the creator of Paul Stretch, a guy called Paul Nasaka. So mm-hmm. there's an interview where he talks about why he made it and how it works and that kind of stuff. So if you are interested... Maybe you could create your own music. Maybe someone should make a really, really super slow version of the Cortex intro uh, tone and just see how that comes out. Hmm. Like for four hours or something. We did get a bunch of uh, other feedback. The one I liked the best was someone sent along the Windows startup sounds slowed (laughs) 4,000%. I think that is my favorite so far of all the various ones that I've heard. They are surprisingly relaxing and once again, very good ambient music to hear the Windows startup chime slowed down 4,000% along with a few other Windows sounds. So I like that one. I was listening to that the other day. I liked the Jurassic Park theme, which Simon sent in, which is a thousand times slower. And because it's only a th- only a thousand times, you can still kind of hear it in there, you know? Huh. Uh, but I was listening to it for about 25 minutes, and I don't think I got to the like the main crescendo. I was like, <laughs> I think I'm done now. <laughs> I like it's one of those I kind of forgot it was playing. It was just this noise in the background, uh, and then it, and then I was like, okay, I'm done. I looked. I look at the SoundCloud page, and it's like you've got another half an hour to go. <laughs> That's why these things are good, though. They, they they are surprisingly good ambient background music that you just forget about very quickly, but it's it's still there, occupying that monkey part of your brain, which is always looking for distraction. So slow music, thumbs up. So last week, uh, we were both very excited with our new mouse purchases. Have you been using your MX Master? How do you feel about it? It's great. I've been doing a little bit of audio editing with it. This morning, I was actually doing uh, just a little bit of, not exactly animation work, but kind of pre-animation work with it. 
And uh, I'm gonna say it is the best mouse that I have ever used. It's uh, it's really nice. There's a couple of times when in, in specific programs, I like the ability to switch around what the various buttons do, especially a couple of those thumb buttons on the side to change what they do depending on the program. So I've got to say, this is uh, if I'm recommending a mouse, this is definitely going to be the mouse that I would recommend. Uh, I would just say with all mice, I'm always aware that they are the fastest to irritate some of my RSI issues. So in my constant rotation of input devices, the mouse always gets the smallest segment of, of uh, the full pie chart there. But the MX Master is definitely going to be my go-to mouse in the future. Why do you continue to use a mouse then? I use the mouse because I find it useful to rotate the input devices right. because even with my pen, which is the one that bothers my RSI the least, if I've spent a whole day using the pen, it can, it can feel like it's sometimes good to switch over to a trackball or to a mouse later on just to be using a, a different set of muscles for input. So that's why I, I do like to rotate things back and forth. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense, actually. Um, I continue to have a fantastic and torrid love affair with my MX Master. I was gonna say, have you married your MX Master yet? That's, that's the impression that I've gotten. It keeps spurning my advances, but eventually mm-hmm. I, will, I will wind it down. I love this thing. I have only one complaint, and I don't know if it's just for, for me. Uh, there's like a part where your thumb goes like down, like your thumb goes down. There's like a button there, and mm-hmm. with the way that you grip it, there's a very slightly sharp piece of rubber that is on the kind of the corner, and it kind of digs into the. I can't think of what the word would be webbing. I don't know between my thumb and my hand, but that's it. But I can kind of soften that down a little bit, and it's fine. I don't even. Something's wrong with your hand or your mouse. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm looking at it on mine. So you see where the buttons are? Yeah, I see where the buttons are. Where the plastic connects with the rubber. Yeah. That mine is just ever so slightly raised. But it's not a massive problem, and that is the only problem I have. So in summary, I love this mouse. Oh, that... I think you have very sensitive hand webbing. I have very sensitive hands, yes. (laughs) My hand webbing is very sensitive. I'm known for that in around these parts. There we go. The battery is excellent on this mouse too. And I like that all you need to do to recharge it is just plug it in and keep using it. Someone on the Reddit was complaining that they hate wireless mice. And someone was pointing out that, well, it has a USB cable to charge it. So you could just leave it plugged in all the time and constantly charging. And now you have a wired mouse. And they seemed to think that was an acceptable solution. I saw that too. And also thought it was kind of a little bit beautifully crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Because it doesn't, I don't know why that solves it for you. Like, I don't know what your problem with wireless mouse uh, is so much that if you just plug it in, like, would it be better if you just got a mouse with batteries and tied a piece of string between your mouse and your computer? Would that also (laughs) suffice? I don't know. Yeah, you need a lanyard so that it never falls away when you're using uh, the mouse pad. Maybe they do like, I don't know, that they have a really bad desk and their mouse just slide away otherwise or something. I, I don't know what the problem is. But yeah, so even for people who are desirous of a wired mouse, this wireless mouse is a perfect solution. So I think we both have to, uh, we both have to thank MKBHD for his recommendation because it's yep. working out pretty well for us. Do you remember, I'm sure that you do, a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about your issue with the Apple Watch in that... Uh, it doesn't track your sleep or give you the silent alarm? Uh, yes. Is your solution of charging when you take a shower still suffice? Does the battery still work for you? Yep, since whenever we record that episode, that's what I've been doing all the time, is I charge it very briefly in the morning uh, when I'm getting ready, 
and I can charge it at night if I'm taking a shower before going to bed. And just, you know, two little sessions of, of 20 minutes here and there works perfectly fine for me. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. So I do actually sleep with the watch every night and I do use it as a silent alarm in the morning. Okay, so someone on the Reddit suggested this and I can't find their name now, but uh, they bought one of these uh, kind of fitness tracking bands by, uh, I think they're a Chinese company, Xiaomi? Xiaomi? Is that how you say it? Xiao? Xiaomi, yeah. It, someone once told me, because I kept saying it wrong, and they said it's kind of like saying shower me. So that's how I remember. <laughs> Xiaomi. Uh, they make something called the Mi Band, which is about $20 uh, shipped. Uh, they do. They basically make decent technology for incredibly cheap prices. They're, this is the company that um, has, is just, just blatantly copies Apple, like even down hmm. to their packaging and their websites and stuff. Um, oh, that's why the name sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, that's probably how you know it. Also, one of uh, Google's executives, Hugo Barra, went to work there and became their like chief of design. Um, but what this guy has done is they, they use it to, for sleep tracking um, and they also use it for like the silent alarm thing. Uh, and the battery lasts like 40 days <laughs> on charge. It's crazy. I know a couple of people actually that use this. So this is a, an option for you, a cheap little sleep tracker that you can wear. And then, you know, you can still do your Apple charging thing. Maybe you could have both. You can be like double alarm guy, but there's a little solution for you. No, that's a redundancy too far. That's a redundancy too far. <laughs> 40, 40 days and 40 nights is an impressive battery life. But uh, I think I'm, I'm happy enough with what the Apple Watch does because the silent alarm was really 80% of the thing that I missed. The sleep tracking would be nice, but I've, I have a requirement now for anything health-related is that if it doesn't talk to HealthBook, I am not interested because I don't want to have a whole bunch of little walled gardens each with different pieces of my health data all over the place so i think i'm probably just going to stick with my apple watch method for the time being but this looks like a viable alternative for anybody who is just looking for a silent alarm in the morning and doesn't want to drop a bunch of money on an apple watch i actually think that 40 days of charging is not useful because like my pebble when i used to wear a pebble that would last for about seven days and the battery mm-hmm. always died on me because I wasn't used to charging it. Yeah, I used to have this similar kind of problem with the Kindles. Exactly, yeah. You're much more likely to actually be in a moment when you run out of the battery because you don't think about the battery. But seven days seems like an awkward amount of time, whereas 40 days, that's that's long enough that, you know what, if once every 40 days I run out of battery, that might be that might be an acceptable time period. Whereas once a week is just enough to be consistently annoying without being frequent enough that you're always going to remember. Yeah, because I guess when it's like, oh, you've got 10% battery life remaining, you've still got four days to find a charger. <laughs> you know, exactly. You're probably okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gray, I have a game suggestion for you. Oh, yeah? Um, I saw this a couple of days ago. I haven't actually played this game yet, but I played a demo of it at a games expo that I went to a year ago. It's mm-hmm. called Big Pharma. Oh, this has been on my list, but my understanding is that this is not a Mac game. Uh, I think it's on the it's on Steam. Steam have it with the little Apple logo. So, oh, if they do, that's new because last time I looked into this, it was not available on Apple, and I haven't figured out how to do the whole du- dual boot to Windows Ten thing yet on my Mac, which. It's probably something I shouldn't figure out how to do because I would only use that for playing games and that's the last thing I need is to expand the possibilities of more games for me to play. But, uh, oh, if Big Pharma is available on Mac, I will definitely 
I will definitely check it out. I don't know if I have publicly apologized for this, but I did malign Factorio a long time ago for being a fugly game that I would never play, that I did eventually crack and play and enjoyed quite a lot. But a lot of people were suggesting Big Pharma as the pretty version of Factorio. It's like there's a whole new genre of video games now, which are assembly line video games. Uh Uh-huh. It's like, you are Henry Ford, and you have to design various assembly lines to do things efficiently. And so, yes, Big Pharma looks like it's the pretty version of this. I am hopefully coming out with a video very soon. So I do, I do need something to play around with after the video is up. So maybe this will, uh, this will be the next one on my list. Yeah, I, I like the look of this game a lot. It's got a real bright color and a great look. And basically, you play a pharmaceutical company. And you have to come up with drugs to cure diseases. and But I'm sure that there is, you know, you end up doing all the terrible things that you end up doing, right? As the decisions that you make in these kind of games. And if you think about the actual ramifications of them, it ends up being kind of weird. I saw the developer was, I think he tweet, I saw him tweet or something, or I read something recently where he was like, the comments that they get and the feedback that they get is really weird. Because it's like, I've cured AIDS, I've cured cancer, and now there's nothing to do. Like, <laughs> it's like when you think about that, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Games can definitely make you think about things in a very, in a very strange way. <laughs> but yes, that's it. Oh, I'm bored. I've, I've solved all of these diseases. I need you, game developer, to come up with new diseases for me to solve in your game because otherwise I'm really bored. This week's episode of Cortex is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get yourself for a fraction of the price that you're going to find in stores. For years and years, the mattress industry has been dominated by companies that want to force consumers into paying notoriously high prices. But Casper is here to revolutionize the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly to you, the customer. A Casper mattress is special. It provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, and it's special because they have made their own kind of mattress, a new hybrid that combines premium latex with memory foam. So you've got the lovely latex foam and the memory foam as well. These two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days, and it has just the right sink and just the right bounce. All of Casper's mattresses are made in America, and their prices are brilliant. Usually, a mattress is going to cost you well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-sized, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. It's really awesome. Casper also understands that the prospect of buying a mattress online kind of seems a bit peculiar. I mean, we're all used to going into a showroom and you sit down on a bed for two minutes and decide that's the one you want to sleep on for the next 15 years. But when you think about it, that's the crazy way of doing it. Because what Casper does is they ship it to you, right? So you, you order the mattress that you want. They send it out to you in this box, which is kind of magical because you take it out of the box, which it doesn't seem like that mattress could fit inside. You open it up, it unfolds, and it like breathes itself to life as the air all rushes inside the mattress, which is really cool. So you get 100 days to try out the mattress. And if you're not happy within that period, you can return it. It is completely risk-free, so you'll get free delivery and free return within a 100-day period. Because lying on a bed for just a couple of minutes, you're not going to know if that bed's right for you. You're not going to know if that mattress is right for you. But you're going to know if a Casper mattress is right for you because you'll get to try it out at home in your own bed with your own pajamas. You want to go and try this out for yourself. Listeners of this show can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com cortex and using the code cortex at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. 
please go and support Casper because they're going to give you a great mattress for you to sleep on and it also helps support this show. Thank you so much to Casper for sponsoring this week's episode of Cortex. So you have a podcast suggestion. We're all about media suggestions today now. Well, it's not exactly a podcast suggestion, but I I suggested something for you to listen to, which was this episode of Planet Money number 647. They have rather a lot of episodes, uh, which is called Hard Work is Irrelevant. I just thought it might be a, a little bit of a thing to talk about on the show because it happened to catch my attention for a couple of reasons. But did you get a chance to listen to the thing before uh, we've recorded? Yeah, I did. And, and I would actually say that people should just pause this podcast and go listen to it it's like 20 minutes so it's it's not difficult yeah it's it's very fast especially if you're using smart speed on overcast yep it's 15 minutes to listen to so we'll put a link in the show notes people should go should go and grab it yeah i did listen to it. i was it was good because i didn't read what it was about right i just mm-hmm. i just pressed play so it was interesting that it was a story about netflix did you have uh, any initial impressions from listening to this episode i'm just curious to see what you thought about it before i, I go through my notes here not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of what it was like to work in a big corporation, even though I didn't work in a corporation that works the way that that does, but just like the way mm-hmm. that everybody, the word, the language people were using and like the 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 idea of the company being a thing mm-hmm. was quite interesting. Yeah, that was my impression as well that I, I think the, the headline is a little bit actually irrelevant to what the show was really about. But it just struck me as an interesting episode that I would I would say laid bare a lot of the internal thinking and operation of a company and specifically how it relates to you, their employee. TLDR, they don't really care about you unless you are valuable to them at this very moment. Is there something that you can do for the for Netflix, the organization, right now? If the answer to that is yes, they will keep you on. And if the answer to that is no, they will get rid of you immediately, even if you are a highly skilled individual. Like at one point they were talking about how they got rid of a huge portion of their engineering team. That their 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 policy with HR was more or less... It's not our job to try to find stuff for you to do. As soon as the thing that we have hired you to do is over, we're just getting rid of you. And we may make new jobs available at Netflix that people can apply to, but there is no internal movement really within the company. It's just you're brought on, you do a thing, and when that thing is no longer relevant, you are out the door. And I just thought there is this notion that a lot of people have about how companies work and i think particularly if you are listening and say you are in college or you are about to enter the working world this might be a rather enlightening episode to listen to to just to be aware of how corporate structures think of you it reminded me a lot of a realization that i came to uh, quite early on in working for a big company mm-hmm. when uh, i worked in a small team maybe of about six or seven people and one of those people were, were going to leave. They were going to go to a different part of the organization. And I thought that everything was going to end and we were all going to be in dire straits because we were a team and we were a unit. Mm-hmm. But you you quickly come to find out that <laughs> nobody is important and things just continue to move. 
Like there are, there ends up being like there's certain things that Bob knew how to do and Bob knew how to do them best. Mm-hmm. But if Bob Bob goes, you either change the way that you do things or you try and figure out what Bob did. Mm-hmm. And everything just continues. Like nobody is as important I mean, we talk about this quite a lot, actually. Nobody is as important as they think they are, myself included. When I left the, the bank, I was expecting to be getting phone calls every week because people didn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. I got, like, two of those in, like, the first week, and then and I never heard from anybody ever again because they just <laughs> carried on, right? Everyone forgot that I was ever there, and they just carried on. But the, the weird thing is Netflix seems to communicate this to their employees, which is strange because that's not what usually happens. But they kind of say, like, you are not important. And there's this one story in the in the podcast that I found kind of a little uncomfortable, I think, where there's mm-hmm. this one lady who was, like, a, an absolute star employee, right? She did. She was, she was She worked herself to the point where she was ill. Her doctor said that she needed to have time off. She spoke to the boss, Patty, who's, like, the focus of the episode. And... She was like, yeah, take whatever time you need. And then it went on and on from weeks to months. And she would like communicate. And then like the lady would, would contact Patty and say that she still needed more time. It's like, okay, yeah, no problem. And it sounded like a story of, oh, we care about you. Uh, but then eventually the, the, like the lady who's talking who was, who was on uh, disability leave realized that Netflix had moved on without her and she didn't have a job anymore. Yeah, that was, that was particularly a moment where you think the story is going one way, but it goes entirely the other way. And yes, it's Netflix is saying, oh, don't worry, you can take as much time off as you want. But we are we are just going to design the whole company so that it doesn't need you while you're gone. <laughs> like, it's like, thanks. You know, thanks uh, for all okay. this time off, I guess. Right? But it just, it feels, but that to me feels like, but if I was there more, maybe this wouldn't have happened. So I'm not sure that your vacation time was really a favor that you have done me. Yeah, it, it's the episode. I just thought, yeah, it's you know companies are like this, but it, it almost struck me as a certain kind of I don't know. I almost want to say unawareness on behalf of of how open they were about this like do you think this doesn't necessarily demotivate your employees yeah i think it's not a good thing they, they, yeah. this was pitched as being a good thing yeah but i don't think it's a good thing yeah and and there were a couple of things that uh i just took a little note of which again patty is the the woman who was at hr for the the beginning part of netflix here who's the main focus of the story but she talks about how at one point they decided to fire one out of every three employees and really cut the company down. And of course, businesses have to make that decision. You know, we all understand this. If the company goes bankrupt, then everybody loses their job. So sometimes you have to get rid of a whole bunch of people. But this was immediately followed by her saying, after that, it was so fun to go to work because everybody who was left was working really hard. And all I could think of was, do you not think that maybe the people who are left are all terrified that they're going to lose their jobs. And of course, they're all putting in lots of overtime and doing everything they can for Netflix because they just saw a third of the staff get fired. But it it was a bit of this unawareness where she and and the the CEO of Netflix are like, boy, what a great company we work at. Everybody works out so hard. That firing went great. It's just like, oh, God. Because at one point she goes, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's like, 
oh my lord like that is so yeah like she was doing duck duck goose with the employees and everybody who was goose got to go home forever (laughs) see the thing is like my feeling about it the way that it ends doesn't make sense to me the whole story because she talks about firing as this thing and everyone understands it but then she got fired Right. And seems to be really affected by it. Yeah, this was the part that was beautiful. And I I had to write down one line because the interviewers, they ask her and they say, you know, what was it like to fire all of these people? And and she says that she she became, quote, the queen of good goodbyes. That she was just really good at firing people and turning these into positive conversations about how you're going to go on with your career and nobody should think of their career as as a permanent thing, you know. Like that last part is is definitely true. Like I, you shouldn't think of going to work for a company as as happening forever. But that's that's not necessarily what you want to hear when you're being fired at that moment. You know, like there's, there's a. It just didn't sound like she was handling this quite right. But so while she described herself as the queen of good goodbyes, yes, as Netflix has pivoted to doing more and more original content production they mentioned that her key skill which seemed to be hiring technical employees and lower level employees was no longer necessary because they transitioned into a hollywood company and she did not have any connections in hollywood and so the ceo fired her and then they say in this show that she did not want to talk about it because quote it was too painful and too sad to talk about and it it was just it was just kind of mind blowing to hear this. It felt really kind of um, misguided, especially because you realize she's doing this interview with Planet Money, and all I wonder is how can you still talk about how great it was to fire all of these people when at the same time you cannot discuss your own firing, but you're telling everybody else that oh this is just. This is just great. And you've picked up skills at Netflix that you can go use elsewhere. It's, it's why I think the episode is very interesting, very eye-opening episode to listen to about the internals of a corporation laid bare. And, and laid bare in a way which I don't think is necessarily so good for the employees. It, it's just, it's very interesting to listen to, I think. For me, I listen to something like that and I'm reminded why I wanted to be self-employed. Right, right. Because no one can do that to me. Yes, this is this is definitely the case of somebody else has control over your life. And the reason why I listened to this episode in the first place was I thought, because the title is called Hard Work is Irrelevant, and I thought, oh, maybe this will be related to what we were talking about before about PewDiePie makes millions of dollars, but does he work millions of times harder than anybody else? The answer is no, he doesn't. And so like hard work is irrelevant in that way. That's kind of where I thought the episode was going. But instead, it was it was really focusing on this issue of how hard you work is not relevant to the company. They just care that you can produce something right now, which is a value for them, which, again, is fine. Like, I understand that's how companies work. But what I didn't like was this duplicitous nature of it, where Netflix did things where they said, oh, we want you to produce things that are of value to us. And that's the only thing we care about. And so we're going to offer unlimited vacation time to everybody because all we care about is results. We don't care about your hard work. But then we 
fire the person who ends up needing to take a lot of vacation time. And also I've seen a few studies talking about how companies that do unlimited vacation time have employees take far, far fewer vacation days yep. than they would otherwise. Because just like this woman who got fired, everybody knows there's a line somewhere at which the company is going to try to replace you, but you don't know where that line is. And so everybody's afraid to actually take their vacation days. And then on top of that, if, if your company is saying hard work is irrelevant, we only care about output, my only question is, oh, okay, great. How many people get to go home early when they've done the things that are of value to you? Because it certainly sounds like nobody. It sounds like everybody now has the hard work dial turned up and the output dial turned up just to absolute maximum because they're afraid of getting let go in the duck duck goose game that is played every once in a while. I do agree with the conceit that like people staying late to try and show how hard they work is not useful. Yes. Right. And that's one of the key parts of it. Like, Trying to display your hard work is not as useful as producing results. And I feel right. like that's where that's like the underpinnings of where this came from. But I feel like the problem is I don't think there is ever a right way to do this stuff. You're either going to go one way or the other way and neither of them really seem to work. I think fundamentally it is basically impossible to run a perfect company when you're dealing with lots of people. You're mm -hmm. going to go one way or the other way and you just have to choose whatever way you want to go with and whatever one you're comfortable with. And I know that me personally, I'm not comfortable with treating humans in that regard, like as just units of things. This is one reason why I don't really want to be in charge of any employees either. Like I never want anybody working directly for me. There may be circumstances where that happens in the future, but it's something that I go out of my way to avoid because I don't want to be put in that position of having to evaluate other people. I mean, I get uncomfortable even when I have to do that sometimes with people who are doing freelance work for me. And there've definitely been freelance people that I've tried to work with that I don't contact again just because it hasn't it hasn't worked out, but that feels very different from someone who's an employee who you know their entire livelihood is dependent upon you like that's that's something i would much rather i would much rather avoid because ultimately you do have to judge them on on their output and it's just a very uncomfortable thing to do but something about the netflix openness about this was just i don't know it almost struck me as weirdly sociopathic i, I don't know i don't know if that's if that's too far but there was something about the the whole show that i just found slightly horrifying but uh, I don't know if you actually, did you try to look at those, uh, the slides they were talking about? No, I didn't. Yeah. So I found, I found the slideshow that they mentioned that this, that Netflix put together just like a company would this 156 slide document oh. about their employee. I know. And I was, I thought, let me try to look through this. Who on earth can read these things? I, I don't understand why businesses feel the need to communicate with each other in PowerPoint presentations like this would be a thousand times easier to read if you wrote it like a like a big boy in paragraphs on a piece of paper instead of doing all of this bullet pointed i don't know i just find it absolutely exhausting like i just my brain slides away when looking at all this stuff but it's it still seems to me even though it's it's supposed to be this amazing thing it's still just a bunch of of corporate mumbo jumbo 
yeah, a bunch of a bunch of corporate mumbo jumbo, and I'm like trying to find the relevant slides. The only one that I could find is their their hard work not relevant slide has the bullet points. We don't measure people by how many hours they work or how much they're in the office, which again, totally is possible to agree with. And they just say that uh, we do care about accomplishing great work and that A-level performance, despite minimal effort, will be rewarded with responsibility and more pay. That is a radical notion. Like, I think that part is kind of okay to talk about. Like, we, we will reward you for doing amazing things, even if it didn't, if it wasn't very hard for you, because we don't care how much, how hard it was. Like that's okay, but I just think there are very, very limited ways to set up a company where you don't end up also implicitly seeing people push themselves to the very, very limit because everybody is competing with everybody else on on this company floor and so ultimately what netflix really wants is people who are doing a level effort all the time like that's really what they want and they they're not really going to say oh you you're clocking out at 11 a.m but it's okay because you wrote a couple of amazing lines of scripts of code that are going to save us a whole bunch of money like i just don't get the feeling that that's really how it how it works there that if you wanted to clock out they'd be just fine with it yeah, like I, I so I fundamentally agree with that principle. I just think the implementation of that is fraught with problems. Yeah. Anyway, depressing topic number two for the day, I guess. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's move on to talking a little bit more. We've got some interesting points about side projects we were talking mm-hmm. about again uh, last week. I feel like it's probably maybe every episode we will do this. Uh, but um, Spencer wrote in with something. I uh, like this. Uh, it was too long for a tweet, so he wrote it out in notes and sent me a screenshot, which I quite like. But I thought that this was <laughs> a fantastic insight into me and you and the way that we differ on motivation. Mm-hmm. If you remember, you were saying that like uh, you work in the mornings because you have to get it done, and I'm like, I will work in the evenings because it's important to me. It doesn't matter how tired I am because I love mm-hmm. what I do. So this is what Spencer wrote in, and he said, uh, I think an important point to make in the motivation discussion is that Gray was trying to become self-employed, not trying to become a professional YouTuber. Mike, on the other hand, loved podcasting and did it just for fun. For him, podcasting is the equivalent of watching TV and eating ice cream. Mike can work on that side project when he's worn out because it's just so enjoyable for him, whereas Gray wasn't that committed to YouTube specifically and was using it to achieve self-employment. Yeah. I think that's really insightful into the way that me and you are. Because that's true, right? I did it as my... It was my hobby. So I would do it when you would be sitting and watching TV or watching a movie or whatever or playing a game in your evening to unwind. But that was what I did, mm-hmm. right? And so it was like... Because, you know, correct Spencer and me if we're wrong, but it was for you. It wasn't so much like YouTube is what I've always dreamed of. It was just like I. this is a way I can achieve the self-employment, which is the dream. Yeah, that part of it is definitely true, that I was not aiming for YouTube. I didn't even know that YouTube was a way to make a living. And so the fact that I have ended up as a professional YouTuber was kind of an accident. And as may come relevant in later discussions, it was also not obvious to me that the YouTube thing was the thing for quite a while. It took me a while to even figure that out. So yes, I was I was working on other projects. and But yeah, I think that is, that is fair to say that my goal was self-employment and trying various things to to reach that and whereas for you mike making podcasts is just like eating ice cream and you can do it all the time without getting too fat without getting too fat (laughs) uh spew edits on reddit uh wrote in and gray please pronounce this word for me i can't do it 
What cause, word? Because I'm going to leave it to you. No, you say uh, it. Go ahead. Because because uh, sat. I don't know, man. I can't do this. Keep going. <laughs> anyway, that channel that we were talking about last week uh, is a what channel was that, Mike? Uh, he's so Spear edits. He she says uh, it's a great channel, but it's a bad example in their opinion of how mm-hmm. many uh, of your points regarding how easy or hard it is to make it on YouTube. They made it to eight hundred and seventy-five thousand subscribers in two years of a team of people. Very high production value relative to many other channels, and from what they've seen, they also spend at least some money on advertising. So, what this person is getting at is that all of the things that we were talking about last week as to how we believe that it is still easy to go out there and achieve the level of stardom that you want and you brought up this channel as an example of how it can still be achieved right yeah it's well before you go on to your points there's this one clarification that i want to make which i'm not sure uh, made it into the the show last time but i i bring up kirkusat because very often I hear a, a whole separate argument about there's no room for any more educational YouTubers. And Kyrgyzat is my example of someone who has broken into the pre-existing category. But yes, I completely agree. Their production values are crazy high compared to, I mean, almost anybody else on YouTube. They are a team of people and they put together amazing looking videos. But I just want to say that that... I recognize at the time, like, they're not the best example just in general, possibly, on YouTube, but I think they are an example of someone who is breaking in to a specific market that already exists that they're that they're aiming for. See, I do still disagree, though, with the idea that, that they're not a good example of how it is still possible, at least, without, you know, it's still possible, basically, to break in, because... Mm-hmm. All they're doing is showing what you have to do now. Like the goalposts move. And maybe these are all of the things that you must do to be successful. But if you are determined and you can maybe put money into it, which pretty much you've always had to put some money into it, right? Because we were talking before, you had to buy tools, but now tools are free, so you spend money in other places. Mm-hmm. And if you're determined to it, and if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But it's, I think it still proves that these paths are open and available to anyone. I do just want to do one correction, though, which is that Kyrgyzstan hasn't spent any money on advertising. Right. But there's a thing that happens on YouTube, which is a little bit confusing sometimes to uh, viewers because you will. OK, so YouTube has this system where you as a channel can create a quote ad for your channel. So I have one of these little videos I made. that's a 30 second. This is the CGP Grey channel ad. And you can put that into the YouTube system. And what I think YouTube does is anytime they don't have paid advertisements for a video that's playing, they reach into this big bin of YouTube channels that have created ads and they run those. But you as a YouTube channel do not pay uh, to have those shown. I always wondered about this. Yeah, they are shown. The impression that I get is that they are shown when YouTube is basically run out of inventory. But the other thing uh, about these ads is, one, they're available to everybody. I think once your channel hits some minimum number, like if it's 1,000 subscribers or 10,000 subscribers, they allow you to create this little ad. And the second thing is that it's run through like all of the advertisements on YouTube. It's run through uh, their algorithms about how effective it is at actually getting people to subscribe to your channel. And so if 
your ad is deemed through A-B testing to be not very effective, like they will just stop running it. But so Kyrgyzat created one of these ads, but this is really part of a YouTube internal self-promotion mechanism. It's, it's not paying for advertising. So I just want to be, make people really aware that the barrier is not, oh, we have a bunch of money and we're going to spend it to promote ourselves. The barrier is actually you have to create an ad that promotes yourself in an effective way when compared to other people's ads. But you can still do it for free. So again, the, the barrier here is create something that is effective not spend money to get shown. Like, that's how this internal market works on YouTube. Okay, that makes, that makes sense. I think that, that Kyrgyzat brings up an interesting point about branding. Mm-hmm. And a couple of people said this on the Reddit, and I agree. And, and I don't want to try and offend anybody, because I don't know. I'm sure that this word means something to a section of people in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's super easy to spell, and they hear it, and they can spell it perfectly. What language do you think it is, Mike? German? <laughs> you are correct. It is yeah. German. Um, so I expect- come on with that K and the Z's and the G's and the GT. It's got to be German. Yeah, <laughs> basically a lot of sounds I can't make. Um, I I assume that in Germany this means something, and everybody knows how to spell it and find it. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to me that they they put a lot of work and effort into trying to make something successful. So they mm-hmm. I would assume probably wanted it to be successful worldwide. And that, I think, for me, makes the, the branding choice an interesting one. Because, and the way I say this is, last week you mentioned this show, right? When I was listening through to the edit to try and put the show notes together, I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. I was Googling because I didn't know how to spell anything. Like, I, I couldn't even really, I was, like, listening over and over again and couldn't even pick out the, the letters that you were trying to pronounce. Yeah, you sent me an iMessage that, that was something like, what is the... Corgisen channel, like C O U R G I S N. I think like I that. just hit the keyboard and to see what, just, just basically, whatever it came out is the mm-hmm. way it came out. So I think branding's important, but you know, I, I don't really want to say it as a way to disparage them, but I just think it's something worth thinking about. Um, that maybe sometimes it's easier to go with a word in a language that is spoken around the world, and I hate to say English, right? But but it's an easier one to go with, or to create a word, which many people do, uh, which is easy to spell when you hear it. Um, It's okay to say English, Mike, because English is the lingua franca of the internet. (laughs) I love that that's French. (laughs) I know, isn't that? (laughs) It's it's always great. It's always great. I will use that every time I possibly can. It's like, suck it, France. (laughs) Yeah, English is the lingua franca. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Oh, dear. It is, it is absolutely terrible. Um, I have two comments on that with the branding. I think of my father has always been a, a, an entrepreneurial, self-employed, thinks about businesses kind of guy. And one of his pet peeves that he would mention to me all the time when I was growing up as a kid was pointing out businesses with terrible names. So he would always point out stores that had a name where you couldn't tell from the name what would be in the store? And so he, he was always pointing out stuff like this, of just getting me to think about, if you're ever going to have a business, it needs to telegraph what it is in the name. So if you're going to have a business that's called Petals, it needs to say, you know, Petals Professional Florists, right? 
or Petals Spa, but it's ambiguous if you're just using a name like Petals. You don't know what it is. Now, I think that advice is true in the physical world. In the, I know, I'm driving down a street and looking at stores' names, or I'm walking through a mall and I'm looking at business names. Yes, in that circumstance, I do think that you need to have something that is crystal clear about what you will find inside. But I'm not convinced that that advice matters so much on the internet when you are doing an attention-getting business, like making viral videos for a living, the most attention-getting business there can possibly be. Because the vast, vast majority of ways that people find you are from sharing links. And I don't think that they're as much from word of mouth or even from people searching. And I actually went to look on my Google Analytics today to see, oh, how many, uh, how many people find my videos from searching for something? And search traffic overall for my videos is under 5%. So I think it matters less on the internet if you have a name that's not super easy to understand if you are in the attention-getting business. But if you're, say, trying to run uh, like a law firm on the internet, then that's a whole different thing, right? Then you need to have it really clear like what your business is. You need to have some name and then law firm after it. So it, so it depends. But all that being said, I have found out today from insider information that Corcusat is actually changing their name. Say they know, right? <laughs> They know, because the thing is, I understand what you're saying about links and stuff, but eventually you want people to remember you and come to you, mm-hmm. and they can't do that if they can't find you, mm-hmm. right? So, like, with, with Relay FM, we took a little bit of that idea in that the FM is in the name because it kind of gives a hint as to what you're going to get, right? Right. FM has become the unofficial domain of podcasts, yeah. podcasting. But we actually put the FM in our brand name, right? Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So, like, we refer to it as Relay because it's easier, but the company is called Relay FM. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to choose a word that could be very, very easily spelt because we deal in the audio business. Right. Right? So people need to hear us and know how to find us. Um, And that is extremely important, I think. So I'm not surprised to hear that they're changing their name uh, because it is very difficult to find them. I think, uh, th- you know, they're approaching a million subscribers now. I think they're somewhere between 800,000 and a million subscribers at the time of this recording. If you could rewind time and change it to their new name, which is what Kirkusat means in German, which is in a nutshell, it's like a, you know, saying, ah, so, saying yeah. that something is summarized, right? They're giving you a summarized version of a topic. If you rewind and make them pick in a nutshell from the beginning instead of Kurkasat, how many more subscribers would they have? And I bet it would be a less than 5% effect. That, that's my guess. Like, yes, it does matter, but is it the most important thing? I, I think not if you are in the viral video business. But if you're going to open, say, a pet shop in your local mall, you can't call it Kirkusat, right? That's not going to do you. That's not going to do you any favors. But those are just two very, very different scenarios. This episode of Cortex is also brought to you by Harry's. For many of us, shaving can be a pain. It can be a pain on our bodies, on our skin. It can be uncomfortable. Can cause nicks and cuts on razor burn. But it can also be uncomfortable 
on our bank accounts because razor blades can be outrageously expensive these days. And this is why Harry's exists. It was started by a couple of guys who just wanted a better product without having to pay an arm and a leg to get it. Harry's make their own blades. They have their own factory in Germany that produces high quality, high performing blades that are crafted by shaving experts. Harry's razors offer a high quality shave at about half the price of the other big brand blades. They ship for free to your front doorstep and their starter set is a fantastic deal. For just $15, you can get yourself a razor, moisturizing shave cream or foaming shave gel, and three razor blades. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you how you can get that for just $10. On average, an everyday shaver will save about $150 each year on blades when they use Harry's. And with Harry's, your satisfaction is guaranteed because that is important to them. I'm a big fan of Harry's products. I love the way that they look. Um, that's one of my favorite things. They have this real cool retro vibe, like a Mad Men type style thing, which I really like. Um, they also feel great in the hand as well. Uh, I love the smell of their products. So I like the aftershave moisturizer. I'm a big fan of the foaming shave gel as well. You should put this little gel on your hand. Rub your hands together and it turns into a foam, which kind of seems like some kind of science magic, which I quite like. Uh, but their moisturizer helps my skin stay nice and moisturized, which is really important. It protects my face. And Harry's blades, I use them to keep myself looking sharp. I am a man who has a beard, but I like to tidy up and, and make sure that all the lines are clean, and that's why I very happily use Harry's Blades to do. You can experience a clean, close, comfortable shave with Harry's. Go to harrys.com, and they will give you $5 off if you type in the coupon code CORTEX with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and the coupon code CORTEX at checkout for $5 off to start shaving better today. Thank you so much to Harry's for their support of this show. Gray, what is an ASMR video? I'm glad you brought this up because this is the thing that I wished I had thought of when we were recording last time, which I think is actually the better example of why there is so much more room for success on the internet now than there ever has been. And that as the audience grows, there are more ways to be successful. So uh, ASMR videos are, this is going to be so hard to explain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you seen one of these? Have you seen no, one yet? I, okay, no, I, I wanted to, I, I really wanted you to explain it to me. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were laughing because you knew what I was about to try to explain or you were just waiting for it. No, but like but, just reading in the Reddit, people were just talking about tapping fingernails. Yeah. Okay. So how do I, how do I put this? Okay, the, the thing that I'm trying to figure out how to get around here is that if you just see an ASMR video, it will strike almost everybody as just really creepy or you, you watching them, you'll have the feeling almost of, is this something indecent to some people? Like what's going on on the screen here? I'm having okay. a hard time understanding. And so if you watch an ASMR video, what you will see on the screen is someone usually talking in a low voice, very often they're whispering into a microphone, and they will be doing something else while they are talking. They'll be cutting their hair, or they'll be moving a paintbrush across a piece of paper, or uh, they'll be putting a bunch of marbles from one jar into another jar. You kind of think like, am I watching a video of someone's kind of fetish or something? Like what is happening here? Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah. like is there somebody out there who has 
a marbles moving from one jar to another <laughs> jar fetish, right? But like, there's nothing indecent on the screen, but there's just something about it that feels really weird. Like, maybe I should back out of this room really slowly and leave these people to whatever they're doing. Some of these videos have, you know, in the many multiple hundreds of thousands of views. And so you're thinking like, okay, right, I'm not a crazy person. We don't live in a society where lots and lots of people have some kind of fetish for paintbrushes moving across paper while someone's talking. Like, this is not the world we live in. Like, what's really happening here? So the purpose of these videos is to invoke a response in somebody's brain based on a sound. And so ASMR is this, it, uh, it's a made-up acronym. It stands for something. I, I forget exactly what it is. But it's a series of letters that's used to describe a physical sensation that some people have in their brain when they hear particular sounds. Autonomous sensory meridian response. There you go. Autonomous sensory meridian response. Which doesn't mean anything. Yeah, my understanding is that my understanding is yeah, that whole thing is just made up. It's just it's just a made up thing to try to describe this strange sensation. Yeah, they could have made up something a lot better than that. Yeah, but this makes it sound vaguely medical, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I okay. Like, meridian response, like, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, but so I, I first found these things years ago on some Reddit thread where people were saying, like, what are some of the weirdest things that exist on YouTube? I'm like, oh, click. Like, let me see. What's what's on YouTube? It's like, oh, God, there's a lot of just weird stuff. Um, <laughs> Burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is the this is the intersection of, like, weird but also very popular. So I was I was watching these videos and I'm like this is just crazy town. I don't understand any of this. This is just bizarre. However, as I kept watching the videos, what everybody says will happen is that if if you find the right one, you will have this weird feeling in your brain. And eventually through enough clicking around, I came across one where I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" And I don't know how to describe it, but I would just say it almost feels like someone stuck like a nine volt battery in the center of your brain and has activated some little part of your brain that you didn't know was there before. Oh, this is weird, man. What are you going to, what have you done to me? For the next four hours, I'll be <laughs> listening to people move marbles around with paintbrushes. <laughs> I know, it's just. Now, now, the thing is, I feel relatively lucky because I would say that it was a kind of sensation I had never felt before. It wasn't super pleasant. It wasn't super unpleasant. It was just different. It was it was a bit like, oh, okay, this is an experience I haven't had before. But some people are like ASMR junkies and des and describe the sensation as being very very nice. And so they just watch these things over and over again. And so like they're it's trying like to a find. High. It sounds like a high. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, like wireheads in the RimWorld series, right? Where you're you're plugging a br like a wire into your brain, <laughs> you know, to make you happy, and you're pressing the happy button all day. Um, but so, yeah, so this is a whole genre of videos and apparently not everybody will have this ASMR response. You know, there, there seems to be some doubt about how legitimate it is. All I can say is that from my own personal experience, I eventually found a couple of videos that did seem to trigger this. The ones, the ones that work for me used 3d audio where they're using audio that's, that feels like it's going around your head. Anyway, my big point about this is these are an example of a kind of thing where there are people who do ASMR videos and make a decent side income from them. And this could never, ever have existed before in the main world because 
you just can't aggregate people together like this without the internet. And you, if you don't have people communicating, you're never going to find, find this out, that this is a thing that exists in the population, but exists perhaps in a very, very distributed way. And so ASMR videos to me are a perfect example of the more people you gather in a single place, the more opportunities there are to do all kinds of things that you as a single individual may never have heard about, but that there is enough interest in the entire crowd. And so if you're looking at, you know, the modern world with billions of people on the internet, there are enough people on the internet now that you can get hundreds of thousands of people who are dedicated ASMR video watchers. <laughs> are you clicking around on your computer now, Mike? Uh, I did a moment ago, and and I I realized that I need to be able to listen to this. Just looking at someone is kind of weird, and I'm kind of a bit scared. So I don't know if I'm gonna watch any of these because I'm worried uh, that it will be the end of everything. Yeah. Well, this is a good example of where what I was trying to say last time about how when people talk about production values, what really matters is is the production of what, like what is the thing that people want, and if you're watching ASMR videos for the video, you're not getting it, Mike. Like the, right, the videos yeah. are often terrible, terrible quality. So they should be podcasts, really, I suppose. I, I, actually, you know, it never occurred to me. I wonder, I bet there are. They've got, it's got to be, right? There's, it would make a lot of sense, I think. Here's the thing. If there aren't already ASMR podcasts, I now know what, uh, what Relay should do for their next podcast. <laughs> I reckon that uh, if we're looking at just voices and soft speaking you'd probably be a good candidate for something like that right you have that voice gray well this is one of these things where it seems like you just need to find the right thing that triggers people yeah and from trying to dig around in this a little bit it seems like this stuff grew out of the old uh oh i forgot his name what's the what's the painter guy the happy little trees painter guy you have no idea who i'm talking about i have do you? no idea who you're talking about you are so young mike Bob Ross. No, that's an American thing. We didn't have Bob Ross. Everybody knows Bob Ross. His show seemed suspiciously popular for a guy who would just talk softly and paint on, on screen. But that a lot of people talk about how like Bob Ross was absolutely hypnotizing to them because the camera would pick up the paintbrush sounds and he would always talk really softly about happy little trees. And so Bob Ross might have been the first guy who was collecting ASMR junkies who just didn't know that there was a whole community <laughs> of them because there was no internet for them to start talking about. Like, does anybody else feel like someone stuck a battery in their head when Bob Ross talks and he paints on the paper? It's like, yeah, me too, me too. Like, you need the internet for that. This is why the internet's great. Oh, yeah, there was something that uh, Brady linked to recently on Twitter right um and i didn't even know that this was a thing that was real which is and i'll find it i'll put it i'll find it and put it in the show notes so you can go and look at it mm -hmm. but the ability for people to be able to vibrate their own eardrums i can do this okay right so i can make a sound in my eardrums i'm okay. able to, to vibrate the sound inside and i always thought it was something everyone could do but it turns mm -hmm. out that is not the case. And it is basically impossible to describe to someone. But mm -hmm. there was this Reddit thread talking about it, and I totally got what they were talking about. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. This is a thing that I'm not aware of. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, find, I'll find this, and I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but I can do it. I can make my eardrums vibrate, and it sounds like a rumbling sound, like a drum roll. Hmm. 
Weird. So, there you go. Weird, Mike. Your ears yep. are broken. That's but that's what, what the internet like. does. It, it connects you with the other really weird people in the world. Yeah. So the, the ASMR videos are one example of you can still make it on the internet, but in a, in a very niche way. But I want to give a, a different example, which I happen to find uh, in, in, this, in the Reddit. Someone linked to a video which mentions ASMR videos, but talks about other things too. And it's a, a YouTube video called uh, Four Huge YouTube Channels Anyone Could Have Made. Uh, I don't know. Did you happen to see this? No. Okay, good. It doesn't matter if you did. I'm not really interested in the videos that he was talking about in this video, but the guy who made this to me is actually a great example of someone who has started a YouTube channel relatively recently. Uh, he's called um, Grade A Under A is the name of the channel. And he started his channel just about two years ago and has terrible, terrible production values. But nonetheless, I ended up watching every one of his videos because I thought they were pretty funny videos. And he's just complaining about stuff. You know, it's why I hate online shopping. He's talking about why he hates the Kardashians, why he hates people who show up at his door. But the, the videos are terrible production quality. Like he's using probably a, like a Logitech headset and they're animated, but like animated in gigantic quotation marks. Like they're barely animated. They're just the most basic of drawings. But at this stage, he has gathered about 90,000 subscribers and 5 million views. And this to me, I don't know anything about this person. I don't know who's behind this. But this to me looks like someone who is like right on the edge of being able to do this professionally. And I think is another good example of the production values don't really matter as much as people think they do. Here's someone who is relatively new and is climbing the ranks because... They make stuff that is enjoyable to watch, even if the production quality is not super high. So grade A under A, making some random funny videos on the internet. You can still make it, people. Start your channel today. This episode of Cortex is also brought to you by Squarespace. You can start building your own website today at squarespace.com and use the offer code Cortex at checkout to get yourself 10% off Squarespace. Build it beautiful. With Squarespace, you'll be able to build your own website that's going to look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding knowledge required. With their intuitive and easy-to-use tools, you can make your own website that looks and feels exactly how you want. Maybe you're looking to start a blog, a podcast, maybe you have a portfolio that you want to host, maybe you have a store to sell some things that you've been making, or it's maybe to sell music, maybe you're in a band. No matter what it is, Squarespace has the tools and the templates ready to help you. Their templates are really customizable, they're really flexible as well. They have some that are set up for specific uses, maybe like for a restaurant, or for a portfolio, or for a band, as I mentioned, or something like that. But they can all be customized really nicely to fit whatever it is you're looking for. They all feature responsive design, so they're going to look fantastic fantastic on all devices, and you can very easily change the fonts, the colors, and the layout to fit your own tastes. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology that will power your website, ensuring security and stability. They're trusted by millions of people around the world, and it's easy to see why. If you need any help with anything over at Squarespace, they have 24-7 support with live chat and email, and they have teams located all across the globe that are there to help you. 
I mentioned a moment ago about having a store. Squarespace has their own commerce platform, which you can use, and you can uh, sell your own goods there, digital and physical stuff if you want. They have their cover page functionality, which is really great for building single-page websites, great for announcements and stuff like that. They have rock-solid fast hosting and so much more. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month, and if you sign up for a year, you'll also get yourself a free domain name, so you can give your site whatever name you like as well. So start a trial with no credit card required today and you can start booting your website straight away by going to squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code Cortex. Not only will this show your support for this show, it's going to get you 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. Thank you so much to Squarespace for their support of this show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Last week, um, there was something that I mentioned that I wanted to bring up with you, Mm -hmm. uh, which is about the UK video. Yeah. So it was your first video, and it was an immediate success, I assume. So I want to understand a little bit about how this happened, because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to see this, because you went from nowhere to having a successful video and then having a YouTube channel, which which brought a career around it. And it's also interesting because, you know, the production values aren't as good in that video as they are later, but it's still managed to be successful. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've even spoken, I think we spoke about this before, even like a lot of the personality that you have is not in this video, right? It's something right. that developed over time. So you're successful now, but it seemed to be successful then. So how did it? How did this happen? Like when you were creating the video initially, did you expect it to be successful? Like why did you do it? Yeah. So the, so the story around this. Now, so I want to preface this with, there's a cracked podcast that they did a while back, which I think was a really good one, which was something about, uh, it's called something like Origin Stories. And it talks about how with people in the public eye who have become successful in any way, we as a society tend to like to tell the same kind of story over and over again about how they became successful. And they go through a bunch of examples of here's the story that you think about how Prince the singer became successful. And then like, here's his actual life. Or here's how Michael Jordan became successful. And here's his actual life. And the, the one example that they use is that that Michael Jordan likes to tell some story about how he was he was cut from the varsity high school basketball team. Right. And they're like, oh, it gives the impression like, oh, he overcame this tremendous struggle. And that that's not even remotely true. And, and a similar thing with Prince, that the, the notion that people have of Prince's career is that he was an ignored talent, but that's not actually the truth if you go dig around. I feel there's a certain kind of origin story for some YouTube channels where they want to talk about how, oh, I just made a video for fun and it became hugely successful and I didn't have any expectations and I just put it up on the internet just for my friends to watch and it became hugely popular. Now, doubtless that has happened sometimes, but I think that's a kind of story that's very easy to fall into telling. And my own origin story is not like that at all. But there's a way in which you can feel like, oh, people want to hear that you just put a thing up and it became popular and you didn't have any expectations of that. But but my story of that is a little bit harder to hear because it was fairly calculated. I put that video up with the expectation that it was going to go 
viral. And I would have been surprised if it didn't. This is what I want to hear, as I assume actually people really want to hear this. Because if you, if this is the type of thing you want to do, you need to know that it's possible to plan it, right? Because otherwise, leaving things to luck and serendipity is not a way to try and start a career, right? <laughs> it's not how this stuff works. Yeah, it's a charming story that is very tempting to tell because it's what people want to hear because then they also feel like, oh, I can be just minding my own business and become very popular through accident and luck. But it's like, I don't think that's really, that really happens very much. So if you'll allow me just a very quick digression. So when I started podcasting, it really was just a fun little thing that I did with my friend and didn't expect anything of it. But soon after, I started making calculated decisions. Mm-hmm. So like I, I didn't start in the idea. I was like, ah, this is what I'm going to do. But when I realized it was something that I liked the idea of being able to do this for a living, right, that this could be my job, I started making calculated decisions about people to work with and relationships to build. Mm-hmm. So like there was calculation in it, but it didn't necessarily start for me that way. But my start wasn't monumental in mm-hmm. any way. That's a different thing with viral videos and the way that works is that if you if you pull things off it can be quite big very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it's still it still can be a calculated thing. And I'm just I'm just suspicious when I hear people say like oh, I have this massive business now and it all just it all just happened, uh, you know, just sort of by accident at the beginning. And I was thinking, did it really? <laughs> like if you're putting something up on the internet, like I always want to go back and see like did you promote it? You know, right from the start, I'm going to bet you did and then that's a, that's not very much like oh, it just happened. I just did it for my friends. But yeah, so anyway, the, the short version of this is that at the time I was trying a few other side projects to become self-employed. And I was thinking that, I, well, I needed to attract more attention to the work that I was doing. So one of the things that I was doing at the time was I was running a kind of time management consultancy on the side. So I had some clients and I was doing some advice on time management and improving their workflows and things like that. And I was aware like, okay, great. I'm making money from here. I don't quite have enough clients to turn this into a full-time thing with the security that I want. So what I need are more clients. And one way to get more clients might be to have more attention in some way. How is this a thing that I can do? And the thing that I mentioned in one of my videos did happen, which is I came across one morning, this milk container in my local supermarket that had a thing about Jersey cows on it with the UK flag, and I was all confused. And I did go home, and I looked it up, and I tried to figure out how was Jersey related to the UK. And this is exactly the kind of thing that quite naturally my brain just loves. Ooh, how does this little puzzle fit together? What is the relationship here? And I was looking through all of this, and I thought, oh boy, this is great. And I was thinking that this could turn into a good presentation, which then at some point I thought, oh, this could turn into a video that I could make, and I bet that this would be pretty popular on the internet. And before I actually even made the video, I did look around and see, has anybody on YouTube made a video talking about the difference between the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and England? And the answer was yes. There were already videos before I made mine that were on this same topic. But I looked at them and I thought, I could do it better than these. I don't think any of these are as good as the one that I could make. And so I'm going to make this. And I ended up, to this day, I wish I still had records of exactly how long it took me. 
but I can say that I was working on this video over the course of several months. Like it took a long time to make because it's the first one and you have to do everything for the first time and, and make all the dumb mistakes you're going to make for the first time. And also do things that you'll never need to do again, like set up a YouTube channel. Exactly. You're, you're doing all the one-time infrastructure setup stuff. So it just, it took forever and I have many memories of being very cold on a train and working on my laptop on the way into work and, and trying to put together a whole bunch of stuff and blah, blah, blah. But it took, it took a long time to make. But one of the reasons why I was really invested in making this video was I was very confident that this was exactly the kind of thing that could go viral on the internet. And my idea was if I make this viral thing, it just gets my name out into the world. People know that I exist as a person. And this is one of the reasons why, if you look at some of my older videos on my YouTube channel, like I have stuff up about time management because that was one of my side projects there. So I was almost thinking of this UK video as like a loss leader of, I can put a lot of work into this. If it becomes very popular, then maybe some of the people who watch this video will find some of the other projects that I'm working on and get interested in those because those other projects are my actual money makers. Right. That was the reasoning behind this. It was to get them in the door. That's it. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It was it was to just make people aware of, oh, I'm a person with a YouTube channel and I have this one UK video that I've made and you can see that and it's interesting and it gets people in the door. But maybe people would look around and see, oh, he's put together some stuff on time management. Like this guy seems to know what he's talking about. Let me investigate further. So that's what happened. And I put it up online. The thing that is is more like the classic story, though, is that I had an idea that it could be successful, but I didn't have any frame of reference for what that success would look like. Yeah. So I didn't have any uh, any expectation in my mind of, oh, this needs to hit 100,000 views or it'll be a total failure. I That is the part where I had no idea what it looked like because I was just so unfamiliar with the YouTube world. And I remember just freaking out every time it passed another milestone of, holy crap, I can't believe there's 100,000 views. Holy crap, there's 200,000 views and so on right up until a million where I almost fainted. It's just like, this is unbelievable. I would never have guessed a million views, but it's more that I just had no real expectation of what success would look like. Where did those million people come from? I can attribute this success largely to posting the video on the United Kingdom section on Reddit. So I made a post which had a title something like, hey, our United Kingdom, uh, I've made a video explaining your country. What do you think? And I posted that huh. And it went right to the top of the United Kingdom section. And that is entirely what snowballed everything else. Because that's quite a cute title. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's a title that is telling people that I have made something about them. Right? I, I'm an outsider and I'm trying to explain your thing. How well do you think I did? That's why I went with that title. I think it's it's inviting. So people click on it and they see if the video is is any good. And you can see in that old thread, I mean, it's still up on Reddit, of you know, everybody telling me all the dumb things that I did wrong and I'm trying to collect all the corrections, you know, right from the start. Here we go. But nonetheless, people did like it and so they shared it. And that's how the viral world works. Is People see something they like and it just spreads and it's this amazing snowball effect. As this relates to people who are trying to do stuff like this now, 
I think people underestimate how much places like Reddit and link blogs are desirous of good content to link to or post. Reddit is a machine that needs to eat delicious, delicious viral videos all day, every day. If you can make something that is good, there are lots and lots of places out there that are just looking for good stuff to post every day. And they constantly need new things. So if you can get the quality of what you're producing above a certain bar, there are lots of people who just want that stuff, who need it for their own livings to post on their own websites to say, oh, I found a funny video today, click here to go check it out. Like there's a whole world out there that needs content to survive. And so that that's partly how this business works is like I, I can make videos and, and people like them. And Reddit is a machine that constantly needs new stuff and people go to Reddit to find new stuff. And so new stuff that's good tends to rise to the top. And I've been lucky so far that people think on Reddit that my stuff is good. But if I make a crappy video, like it's going to get downvoted to hell because like, I'm always competing with everything else. Like videos always, they stand on their own in, in these kinds of systems. How quick did it get to a million? Because uh, I assume it got picked up, right, by sites i assume is what it happened. ended up getting it ended up getting posted just about everywhere uh like everywhere that i knew of that i would hope would post it did post it so i think it you know at the time it was on dig sure the who's who's who of uh important websites always rotates over time but i remember thinking like just about everywhere that i could have hoped would post it did post it kind of like what happened to the laws of lord of the rings videos recently right yeah for some reason that one got posted everywhere it resonated for some reason yeah that was yeah. a bit of a surprise to me but I, that one yeah I, I thought oh this one's just for the nerds and that was uh that was one of those cases where i i vastly uh got it wrong about about how a video would do uh so let me pull up uh the analytics here i'm gonna guess maybe Three months later, four months later, it was at a million, but I'm having a hard time guessing from the graph. I might be I might be off by that. Okay. So this obviously changed your opinion at some point? Well, this is the thing. Because I wasn't aiming for YouTube, I was remarkably thick about this success. I was so slow on the uptake right. of maybe this is the thing. Which looking back on my old emails or notes from the time or projects at the time, it's just, it's amazing to me now how long it took me to figure out, dude, like this is the thing. You've been, you've been trying a whole bunch of side projects. Maybe the thing that you're doing that's consistently getting videos in hundreds of thousands of views, that might be the thing that people want. But I was for quite a while still making these videos and thinking that I was going to divert this attention into other projects of some kind. And uh, there's a few cases where I think even on the old Daylight Savings Time video, which is way, way after this UK video, there's some reference to like time management and another video that's still a time management kind of one. <laughs> I think that's the final time when I, after that I, I realized like, wait a minute, no, YouTube is the thing. You, but you wouldn't give up. I think it was really just that because... Because I was so unaware of YouTube as a career, it right. wasn't crossing my mind. Sure. And it was also uh, in no small part that even though the view numbers were huge, in many ways, YouTube didn't see seem that different from a lot of the stuff that I had done on the side, which 
had generated income. Like I've generated income from a bunch of projects over the years, but never enough to be full time. And so YouTube seemed like another one of these things because uh, as you now know, since we have Cortex on YouTube, the ad rates are not very good. And so even if you're Insanely doing- Insanely bad is the way I would put it. <laughs> yeah. I'm absolutely sure that I was earning much, much more money from my time management clients on the side than sure. I was from the YouTube videos, even for quite a while. So on the pie chart of income, YouTube still seemed quite small. And that in no in no small part probably contributed to my slow uptake. But it is really funny to me now looking back on it and realizing like, you idiot, like this was the thing. <laughs> You know, and it it took it took me maybe eight months to realize it, but yeah, I kept making a few more videos. Somewhat, somewhat, just luckily for me, a couple of things happened where uh, I got into an argument with a coworker about the royal family, and ended up making the royal family video about that, which I think was my next one. And then the the real thing that put me over the edge was the United Kingdom was having its referendum about changing the voting system. Uh, back in 2011, if I remember correctly. And I had out-talked all of my co-workers about that. <laughs> I ran out their interest on that topic because <laughs> I could talk about that forever and other people had a limited amount of interest that they could have in that topic. And I burned through all of the interest available to me from every human who was alive and felt, but I still want to talk about this. Have you heard the news? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Have you heard the news about different voting systems? But yeah, so I made those videos and it was a similar thing. I like, I'm really interested in this topic. I think I can do it really well. I've made a few other videos that are generating a lot of attention. This now fits into like a perfect project to work on because again, still maybe it'll, it'll divert attention to other things. And so that's why I made those first few videos. So there were a series of coincidences that had me make more videos than I might have otherwise made right at the start. But then it seemed like, okay, well now I have a thing that's generating a lot of attention. I've done it four times consistently. Let me keep cranking this wheel and, and see what happens. And, you know, a career is what happened. All right, great. Let me round out today with a couple of Ask Quartet questions for you. Just a couple of quick ones that I like. Um, Tyler wants to know, do you use Alfred? Oh, the Alfred app. Alfred is like it's like an application that you can invoke on your Mac via a keyboard shortcut, which allows you to type into a text field to launch apps, websites, scripts, and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, I think for the past many years, I have done switches between using Alfred and using Quicksilver. And I just go through this cycle where I will use Alfred for many months. And then I'll start to feel, you know, maybe Alfred is just not quite powerful enough for the things that I want to do. And so then I'll switch over to Quicksilver and I will use Quicksilver for many months. And then I'll feel like, you know what? Maybe Quicksilver is just a little too complicated for what I really need. It's a little too heavyweight. <laughs> and I switch back to Alfred. And then the cycle repeats itself. Mm. So I definitely, definitely require an app launcher which is better than the built-in spotlight search because I always open apps and files by doing command space and bringing up either Alfred or spotlight and typing the first couple of letters of the app or the file that I want and pressing return. I could not imagine using a computer in any other way. 
Yeah, if, if something happens and Alfred isn't open, I just don't know what to do. Yeah. What you, I've got to, I've got to what? Go to the applications folder and click on an icon? Barbaric. Barbaric. I'm not doing that. Alfred I, and Alfred or Alfred and or Spotlight, or I should say, Alfred and or Quicksilver just dramatically reduce the I have thought of a thing and it is on the screen time of a computer. It makes it just almost like a reflex to open almost any file or almost any application that you use on a regular basis. They are just mandatory as far as I'm, I'm considered on a computer. Do you use them? I use Alfred. I love Alfred. I use it just to um, launch applications mainly, but I pay for their power pack stuff because I really like having a clipboard manager just in case I accidentally lose something that I've copied. See, I've never gotten into the clipboard manager thing. Which I never use it except for like every six months. When <laughs> except as a security blanket yeah, in case you that. copied and pasted something three yep. copy and pastes ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all I use it for. But the fact because it's there, it's nice. Because the times where the, before I started using it, it's like, well, what do you do? You're out of luck. Right. right, but this is there in case I ever need it. And I, I think it was one day, like I bought the power pack because uh, I made this mistake, and it, I knew it was going to take me a ton of work to fix. So I was like, I need to stop this from ever happening again. So you are an Alfred man. I am an Alfred man. Plus, I mean, you know, it's a little bowler hat in my uh, menu bar. Like, little bowler hat is very nice. How could you? How could you not want that? Like this little guy called Alfred. It's fantastic. It is very nice. I will say, if anybody uses Quicksilver. My recommended interface is the bezel interface, which dramatically, this is what makes Quicksilver different from Alfred to me, is that Alfred is almost very word-based, that you type a few letters and it gives you a list of things and it's written out. But if you use Quicksilver and you change it to the bezel, you're really just manipulating gigantic icons on the screen. It, It reduces the number of words that you look at when you're searching to something and i really like that so that's my recommendation if you're going to try quicksilver uh use the bezel as their alternate interface and chris wanted to know if you had to cut one ios device from your life and please go with me here if you had to do it right which one would it be and why Wait, one iOS device? I mean, I guess I'd get rid of my oldest iPad is what I'd do. Then uh, then my whole life would still be just fine. Okay, an enchi- entire class. So you've got to get rid of the iPad or you've got to get rid of the iPhone? Oh, I have to get rid of... Wait, but the watch runs iOS, right? So we can we say the watch? No, it runs, it runs watchOS. Is it? No, I think it's built on, I nope. think it's built on iOS. Well, I mean, but nope. iOS is also, also built on uh, OS X, so... Oh, don't do that. <laughs> I feel like you lead the discussion to the point where you're able to say that. I would never do such a thing. No, like. I don't. Why would I ever lead the discussion to OSX? I'm going to bleep that. No, don't bleep it. I'm bleeping that don't one. Don't you dare. I'm I not going to let you bleep it. <laughs> <laughs> I bounced the file. I'm putting it in. No, There's nothing you, you can do about it. <laughs> if you had to get rid of one iOS device class from your life, which one would it be? So I have to pick between iPhone and iPad. That's what's happening here. Okay, so right now, this is actually, this is a tricky decision because here would be my strategy. We're recording this just shortly before we're hoping there are maybe new iPad announcements because I'm not a big fan of the iPad mini. It's one of my least favorite Apple devices as it currently stands. But I'm willing to bet that Apple is going to be coming out shortly with a thinner, lighter, 
iPad mini. And if I had to get rid of one class of iDevice, what I would do is I would get rid of my iPhone, drop down to an iPad mini that I could keep in the cargo pants pocket on my pants. I would go to a tailor perhaps and make sure that every pair of pants that I have, trousers for you, Mike, Hmm. has a cargo pocket on the side that could fit the iPad mini. And that's what I would do if I had to get rid of get rid of one. What are you laughing at? Just imagine you have like these just regular trousers that have this huge flapping pocket on the side of them. Right. <laughs> but I but I would You're go with the mini. You're not like a super big guy, right? There, there is no... You couldn't just hide that on your person. Who's saying... I'm not saying it's hidden, oh, but okay. I, have, uh, I have an old pair of cargo pants, which do have a pocket that's just big enough for the iPad mini. And I've walked around sometimes with that when I first got the iPad mini to see like, oh, is this a thing that I can just take out with me back when I had a tiny phone? And the answer was like, not really super greatly, but if it was slightly thinner, slightly lighter, I would definitely rather have... The iPad mini, because I do so much work on an iPad, I like the bigger screen of an iPad, and the phone part of the iPhone is the least relevant part to me at all. I just care that I have a persistent data connection. In fact, that would be a feature, not a bug, if I could no longer receive phone calls, because I hate phone calls. And everybody I know who would ever have to call me, you know what, you can you can FaceTime audio me instead, people. So that's what I would do. iPad mini, if I had to go down to just one, I'd keep it on me all the time. I would ask you, Mike, but it's not even a question because you don't even like iPads. No, it's all changed for me now. You're in love with your iPhone, so... I love my iPad Air. Yeah, but not as much as your iPhone, right? Exactly, because I could just not use the iPad Air. Like, I really, really like it for a lot of stuff, and when I'm at home now, it's, like, my favorite computer to use, but I could just use my Mac, and then when I'm out and about, I don't want to be carrying around uh, an iPad mini in a huge trouser pocket. No, you could get a satchel for your iPad Air and carry it around all the time. That's yeah, that'd be nice. A little man bag or something, you know? Yeah, there you go. Perfect. There you go. Maybe I'll do that instead then. Maybe I'll just wait until they bring out like the 20-inch iPad and then I'll just drag it around in a little cart or something behind yeah. me. Yeah, in this theoretical scenario where you're only allowed one iOS device. Yep. Don't forget to buy t-shirts. <laughs> That's right. We are off. Hey, you're flying soon, right? Aren't you you're flying yeah. away? Yep, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday? Yep. So am I going to be recording with you in, uh, in uh, Hipsterland next time, or what's happening here? No, I will be incredibly jet-lagged and home. I get home the day before we record next. Oh, okay. Okay, but so you won't be in Portland then? No. With your people? No. Nope. <laughs> yep, with my, with my hairy, <laughs> fancy people. <laughs> That's exactly right. But yeah, so... You enjoy your trip to Portland. Thank you. I will speak to you next on the other side of that. And for the listeners, last opportunity to go buy a gray monkey shirt. The blue one.